Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Could your stock picking skills beat the market this year? In this week's FT Money Show podcast, we'll be revealing the results of our 2019 contest between readers and FT journalists and giving you all the details of how to enter this year's competition. January's nearly over, but you still have another 11 months to make good on your New Year's resolutions. If you had resolved to get a pay rise or sort out your company pension this year, then keep listening as expert help is at hand. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. Now, given the rip-roaring success of passive funds, the past few years have not been kind to stock pickers. But whilst we might adopt a more sedate approach to long-term investing in our day-to-day financial lives, FT journalists have long enjoyed the newspaper's annual fantasy stock-picking contest to spice up their investment choices. Well, thank goodness there was no actual money at stake as the results are in and this year plenty of our writers came a cropper. Now the rules of our contest are simple. You have to pick five shares, that's the hardest part, and decide whether you're going long, i.e. betting the shares will rise, or going short, betting that the shares will fall between now and the 31st of December. And then, of course, wait for a year to be humiliated by the intern. But overall, (laughs) FT readers fared much better than we did, because for the first time in 2019, we opened up the competition and around 700 of you made an entry um, and did remarkably well. Our resident markets guru, Robert Smith, is here to reveal all of the results. Welcome, Robert. Um, Thanks for having me on, Claire. Well, thanks for organising the contest. But I mean, let's start by saying at the outset, Investing with a one-year time horizon and trying to shoot the lights out, which is what you need to do yeah. in competitions like this, this is not something that sensible investors should try and do with their everyday portfolio. No, um, of course not. Like single stock investing for anything more than fun money is a terrible idea. It's a, it's a bit like going down William Hill. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't advise that. Um, yeah, low cost tracker funds are generally the way to go. And as like the Neil Woodford example shows, if you're going to use an active manager, do research on who he is and what he's investing in. But the reason we do this is uh, because it's fun. It's a bit like Monopoly. Um, it's it's trying to beat the market in a safe setting. And like the only loss here is your pride. Well, exactly. And it's a good way of learning about um, in- investing yeah. as well. I've been encouraging my, my stepchildren to enter. Um, also, FT schools, um, are, you know, lighting a fire underneath it. So when we ask people to enter this competition a year ago markets were obviously a much different place to where they are now we'd had a terrible final quarter the tech stocks were in the doldrums and there were a lot of companies that were kind of teetering on the brink of bankruptcy so the choices that people made then may be a bit easier to make 
than they are now. Yeah, I think particularly for the FT writers, there at the end of 2018, when they were making their choices last time around, there was a, a massive. Um, some people called it the tech wreck. No, oh, I people remember like that these one. Snappy mm-hmm. little phrases, but um, a lot of technology companies that people who said were overvalued were getting hammered. And, you know, all these fears that, oh, the second dot-com bubble is bursting. But it ended up just being a sort of brief moment of panic. And then large tech companies did incredibly well last year. So some of our FT writers who got suckered into shorting them got their faces ripped off, as we like to say in the market. (laughs) Um, So, like, Apple rallied. 86% 86% last year. 86%. Yeah. It's actually up massively today as well because they've shot the lights out on um, iPhone orders and that sort of thing. So, yeah, anyone short Apple did very badly in our contest last year. But on the flip side, the, the best single stock pick from a journalist was Snap, um, which is the company that makes the Snapchat app, uh, which, again, has a very weak balance sheet. A year ago, it looked very precarious, but a few improvements in their operations, a lot more optimism about tech, and it rallied, I think, nearly 200% last year. So, yeah, there were some writers who did well out of seeing value in these tech companies and other writers who got suckered into shorting them. Now, the other big trend was that the journalists were much more likely to short companies overall than the readers. And some of those short picks worked out quite well, just not the tech ones. Yeah. I mean, look, journalists are sort of maladjusted, negative people. So I don't think it's any surprise that we like shorting things. Um, For fun, I should stress, none of us short things in the real world. Um, But yeah, there there were quite a few UK companies with very obviously damaged balance sheets and business models, which were shorted by multiple journalists. So Debenhams is one example. Now, Debenhams still exists on the high street. It hasn't gone out of business, but its shares have been wiped out. The same is true of Interserve, which is a contractor in a very similar business model to Carillion, which some of our listeners might know caused the scandal a couple of years ago. High debt levels, of course. Exactly. In both of those exactly. So Interserve still exists as a business, but the shareholders got wiped out. Thomas Cook, however, doesn't exist as a business anymore. Its shareholders got wiped out and the business has been wound down. Um, So all three of those companies were shorted by multiple FT journalists. um, And readers. And readers, and readers, exactly. So these were companies with very visible issues. It didn't mean they were definitely going to fail, but people could see problems coming down the track. And and, and obviously a lot of these um, short positions made by some people myself um <laughs> we're doing fairly well um throughout the year and then the boris bounce came along and picked up lots of these kind of struggling uk companies so we ended the year um not doing as well as we might have hoped <laughs> yeah yeah there were some there were definitely some uk focus shorts that sort of got undone by the boris optimism um at the end of the year and Look, it's not just the UK, that sort of game of two halves thing with, with short selling, like a big, the most popular short from our readers and a common short from our writers was Tesla. Mm. Halfway through the year, it was stock price was down nearly 50%. Amazingly, it ended up, ended the year significantly up 
which um, to claw your way back and then end the year up is is sort of kind of crazy. So, yeah, it's it's always fun as you do the the sort of highs and lows as the year plays out of following how your stocks are doing is is always fun. And there's often extreme examples. Absolutely. And, you know, it also emphasises the education aspect to doing this because you're going to give us quite regular updates throughout the year on where things um, are going. And we really hope that younger readers in particular will you know, this will be a way that they can get to learn more about how the markets work. Now, the readers who did really well, some of them are coming into the office um, in a couple of weeks' time to lord it over us. Um, they were really impressive because they, in general, all went long and mm-hmm. on a variety of little-known companies. It's quite easy to pick a company that's in trouble and go short and uh, and benefit from that. But the ones who go long, I tip my hat off because there were some astonishing um, success stories. Yeah, so the thing about short selling is the the most you can make shorting a stock is a hundred percent, because you, this, if you think about it, if if the company collapses, then you lose all your money, but if you bet against it, you make all your money. But the most you can make is a hundred percent of the value of the company, if that makes sense. So you can only make hundred percent. But obviously, if you bet on a really good company, your returns are like limitless, right? If you if you bought Apple stock in the eighties. The stock is up tens of thousands of percent now, right? So the the readers who did well tended to have picked one really good sort of lottery ticket stock, shall we say, that they went long. And the reader who won overall um, was Neil Abbott, and he works in drug registration for a large pharmaceutical company. So you might be able to guess... What stocks he picked? Did he picked what he knew? Yeah, he picked yeah. what he knew, and he picked a bunch of speculative pharma stocks, and one of them went up nearly seven hundred percent. But the thing worth noting is that his overall return was, I think, around one hundred percent, and that's because all the other four like absolutely bombed. And um, Neil, when he was explaining um, his picks. He was very open about this. He 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 said, "Look, the thing about pharma is you either lose all your money or you make a load of money." Um, he 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 was very open about this. Um, that it's a very it's a gamble, basically. So he had think about it this way: he had five lottery tickets. Four of them didn't pay out, and one of them did, and he did quite well. And then the reader who came in second place, he had a much more diverse basket of companies. Yeah, so our reader who came in second place, Matthew Grant, um, he actually had what I'd call more of a hedge fund strategy. Um, so the classic hedge fund strategy is what we call long-short investing. Um, when, it com- when it comes to the stock market, that is, hedge funds do all different types of things, but when it comes to the stock market. And, and that is they try and bet on big winners and they also try and short companies that they think they'll do badly. Um, hedge funds can do a lot more sophisticated things than typical fund managers. But yeah, Matthew Grint could make quite a good hedge fund manager from the looks of things. He shorted Debenhams and that paid off 100%. But he also went long Amazon, which um, is one of these tech companies that did fantastically well last year. So he had a good mix of shorts that did very well and long positions that did very well. So finally, I have to say, which FT writer came top? Wasn't me, wasn't you? Yeah, so it's a good friend of mine, Miles Johnson. He ah. actually, I, I think he was a he devised this competition originally years he did, ago. Yeah, yeah, and then he, and then because he, he wanted to show off. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I should say the year before he did he did very badly, but um, no, he did very well this year. He notched up forty seven percent returns. Um, 
he's now our Ren Bureau chief, as I said. Miles, again, is a kind of wannabe hedge fund manager. Sorry, Miles. So he followed that kind of strategy. He, had, he shorted Thomas Cook, again, 100% return there. But he also had some very good long picks. Um, he went long a company called Altice USA, which is a cable company, which he smartly thought was drastically undervalued. So Miles had a very good mix of different ideas in his portfolio that played out very well. Brilliant. So for people who are listening, thinking, right, OK, five stocks, long or short, I can do this. There is a deadline, I have to say. You need to get it done before um, the end of the weekend. Uh, 3rd of February is the um, is the cutoff, so we need your entry by midnight on Sunday the 2nd. So as listeners are working out what they're going to pick for their five stocks, long or short, under a week left to enter the contest um, online. We need your entries in by midnight on Sunday the 2nd of February. Um, obviously, all the journalists have got to do it too. What kind of things are running through your mind, Robert, as you weigh up what to pick? Yeah, so I have to be honest, Claire, this is the first year where I don't have any big, screaming, obvious ideas in my head. And uh, I have a couple of days left to think about it. But the thing we should note is that our readers are restricted to certain large stock markets, um, which will make it a lot easier for us to track. Yes, because one of the reasons we're launching it so late this year, I should say, is because um, we, we kind of offered every stock in the world last yes. year and it was just absolutely impossible to find a, a spreadsheet big enough to, to track all of those markets, which is a shame um, and we will try and work on including more markets next year. But for now, there's still 3,000 stocks on there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's still a really, it still encompasses like a lot of um a lot. There's a lot you can play with there. Um, I think. I think what I always find interesting personally is when people have big, thematic, sort of structural ideas behind their picks, and I think this is why this contest is useful from ed- an education perspective. Thinking about how changes in society might affect market prices, and the reason I bring that up is because the most interesting. FT writer entry I've had so far, they're still trickling in, is someone who's shorting all US private healthcare companies because he thinks that Bernie Sanders will win the presidency and bring in healthcare for all in the US. And it's going to be very bad for people who profit from healthcare. Okay. So, I mean, that's obviously a very high conviction, one theme thing. I mean, what I will be looking at over the weekend as I'm doing my entry is I think we're going to get more sterling weakness um, ahead in the UK. In the UK's market, I know best. Will that produce any more takeover prospects? Like we've seen some really big ones that have happened this year. So for my for my long picks, I think that's a theme that I will try and exploit. And dare I say, I might get a copy of the Investors Chronicle. <laughs> Have a little look, see what Simon Thompson is uh, recommending in his bargain portfolio. But if you want to enter, then get online now. We've made a link. It's free to do so. ft.com slash stockpick2020. That's ft.com slash stockpick2020. We'll also be tweeting that out all over the weekend from our main Twitter account at FT Money. So you can follow that for the link to the both the article and the competition. And Robert, you'll be coming back regularly throughout the year to give us updates on what's been happening and how people are doing. I'm looking forward to that greatly. Thanks. Well, thanks very much there to Robert Smith, FT's Capital Markets Correspondent. That link again, ft.com slash stockpick2020. And you can read Robert's full article, Are You a Champion Stock Picker? with all of the rules explained now on ft.com slash money. Good luck. 
getting a pay rise and sorting out your company pension. If you are a listener of the Money Show podcast, then these two things are likely to be top of your financial to-do list in 2020. But how should you go about ticking them off? Well, joining me to discuss is the FT's Working Careers Editor, Isabel Berwick, and FT Money's Emma Adjuman. Welcome both. Thank you. Hey. So, Isabel... Would you like a pay rise? Yes, I would, Claire. Well, that was easy, wasn't it? But in practice, your boss coming up to you and saying, would you like a pay rise? Hardly ever happens. And we have to be the ones who are doing the asking. But I mean, how on earth do you ask a question like that? I think the first thing I would say is don't just go in and ask it. Do your prep beforehand and pick your moment. And the key things to get are data, which you can get internally from colleagues Uh, It's a difficult ask, but if you can ask colleagues how much they earn, find someone who does a similar job, take them out for a coffee, raise the subject. The only thing that's holding you back is your own insecurity. And I think we need to get over this because who's benefiting from us not sharing our salaries? It's our employers. And it's a really key thing. I think this is going to be a really key trend in 2020, salary transparency. And when you've got hold of that data and look outside, see, have a look at salary surveys, ask what friends in similar occupations are doing. When you've got that data, pick your moment to ask. Don't go and attack your boss when their doors shut and they're shouting at someone on the phone. <laughs> I like it. Good. And you know, there's so much more data available now as well on websites like Glassdoor, which I have to confess wasn't one I'd heard of until you mentioned it at an event we were at last Glassdoor week. Glassdoor and also for some, some people use the tactic of going out and getting an alternative job offer. It's a fairly high risk tactic, <laughs> but it will help you to leverage in some cases. Um, so that's an increasingly common tactic. And you might find that you like the job that you're being offered more than one you're currently in. But for most people, being focused on growing skills and experience in the workplace in the hope that a growing pay packet will follow could be an effective strategy? I'm not sure it will be an immediately effective strategy, but it's a great thing to do for the long term. If we think about our careers, not as sort of straight lines going upwards, you know, your career might look like it's stalling for a bit, but actually you're getting those extra skills and experience. You're using your employer's resources to help you develop. And then when the time is right, you either ask for a pay rise or move to a new position, either internally or externally. I think playing the long game with pay and experience is a really good tactic. Well, we'll come back more to some specifics on pay in a minute. But Emma, let's turn to company pensions now, which are, after all, a key part um, of our pay. What are the key pieces of information that every worker needs to know about their company scheme? Um, Yeah, you're right, Claire. I mean, the problem is that lots of people are very unengaged with their pension, um, but it's a huge part of what the employer offers you in terms of benefits. So I'd say the two things that people really need to understand. um, Firstly, what's the kind of matching levels that your employer is going to put into your pension? Because um, different companies are sort of more or less generous. Um, Some will actually sort of match everything that you put in. Some might double match. You know, if you actually kind of quadruple, I mean, there's there's lots of different um, models out there. It's it's usually expressed as a percentage of salary. So you would put in, say, 3% of your gross pay and the employer would... Mm match that with 3% or maybe double match, as you say, with 6%. But every company is different. Exactly. And so the key thing really is to understand what your company is offering. And maybe that might be something you might want to bring up as early as a, as a job interview. Well, yes, you know. Isabel, you nodding furiously. I think pensions are absolutely key. And I, I wish people thought about them more when they're thinking about their total remuneration. 
if you've got an employer with a generous pension, that's a huge thing. Uh, a double match or triple match is is something you should really look for, I would guess. Yeah. But what more do you think employers and the pensions industry at large could do to get people to engage with their pensions? Because a lot of people that we met at an event that we did last week, me and Isabel, were kind of like, I know I need to know about pensions, but... Uh, yeah, you know, it's just not very, not very accessible. It really isn't, and I think um, a lot of the issues to do with communication. You know, um, I've been at an event where somebody called the retirement, you know, your your forty year holiday. <laughs> if you think of that as um, as as what you're trying to save up to whilst you're working, it might make you think, oh, well, actually, I want to be, I want to make sure I've got enough money to survive my forty year holiday potentially. Well, yeah, <laughs> in my case, probably. Ten and a half year holiday. <laughs> well, there you are. You know, this is the thing. Um, so I think that uh, there's a real sort of um, opportunity for companies and uh, the, the industry to actually be better at explaining the value of pensions and getting people to be more engaged with that. And the kind of woolly language that you see in the annual statements. But I mean, Isabel, pay and pensions are especially important topics for women because we've all heard of the gender pay gap, of course, but experts have also coined the term the gender pensions gap because women's pensions are so much smaller than men's at retirement. What are the key lessons here for you? I think um, certainly from my own experience, I worked part-time for 18 years. That's a huge gap in my pension. And I made alternative investments during that time. Uh, Not enough but I think there's a lot more thinking we could be doing around advising women on what they could be doing if they're not working full-time, if they're not getting a huge amount into their pensions. And also, at the same time, you have to be saving for your children's education. So there's a lot of calls on your money as a woman, and I'd like to see some structural change in employers to offer more benefits to women who are working part-time, for example, when their children are small or who have caring duties that can help them build up their pension pots. And anecdotally, I've talked to lots of friends who are working part-time and I often ask them have you ever asked for a pay rise um, as a part-time worker and many of them say no I haven't just because they're so grateful to have the ability to work part-time they kind of feel that asking for more money is 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 pushing it but you would say go for it I would say go for it, although I never did that myself. And I think it's a really hard thing to do. And I applaud people who do it. And I applaud employers who are encouraging part-time women to come forward and to be promoted, because I think that's the single key thing, promoting women who are working part-time or in job shares and showing that you can advance in your career while you've also got other responsibilities. And Emma, gender pensions gap obviously a key problem. We do write about it quite a lot in FT Money. What more do you think could be done to narrow it? Well, um, you know, I think that the issue, again, the sort of I was raising about communication and um, women's understanding as well, because if you actually start speaking to maybe younger women from the, from the time before they might be starting to have families about the importance of starting to think about saving now or what they're going to do if, if, if they decide to come back as part-time. That actually starts um, getting women to think about it. And, and, and Isabel's right, you know, I do think that employers also should be sort of doing more to help women maybe before they get into that situation. Well, thanks very much there to the FT's Isabel Berwick and FT Money's Emma Ajumang. 
We will be writing more about both of these topics in FT Money in the coming weeks, but you can check out articles on both on our website now at ft.com slash money. Well, that's it for The Money Show this week. We will be back next week, but if you wish to get in contact with us before then, you can email the team money at ft.com or follow us on Twitter at FT Money. The podcast was produced in London by Lucy Warwick-Ching. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. 